to get started? Let's do it. Uh, let me spotlight you here. Okay, the show is yours, Delson. All right, thank you. So today we're going to be reading 106. And let me take time reading this particular title here. It's uh, Ananija Sapaya Sutta, The Way to the Imperturbable. This is the only sutta where both the Pali and the English are difficult to pronounce, and you can slip up. But uh, anyway, thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country where there was a town of the Kurus named Kamasadhamma. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, bhikkhus, sensual pleasures are impermanent, hollow, false, deceptive. They are illusory, the prattle of fools. Sensual pleasures here and now and sensual pleasures in lives to come. Sensual pleasures here and now and sensual pleasures uh, sensual perceptions here and now and sensual perceptions in lives to come. Both alike are Mara's realm, Mara's domain, Mara's bait, Mara's hunting ground. On account of them, these evil, unwholesome mental states, such as covetousness, ill will, and presumption arise, and they can constitute an obstruction to a noble disciple in training here. So the Buddha is laying out the, the hindrances, the different kinds of distractions that can arise in the way of sensory experiences. And what he says is they are they both including the sensual pleasures and sensual perceptions, whether they're here presently or they will be arriving in the next moment or whenever it might be, all of them are considered to be impermanent, are considered to be illusory, considered to be impersonal. And the moment you take them personally, the moment you see this sensual experience as me, mine, or myself, then you are in, as he puts it, Mara's realm, Mara's domain. You are in Mara's bait or Mara's hunting ground. When we think about Mara, we, we usually or traditionally see him as, see that being as being some sort of a demon or devil or tempter or whatever it might be. But really, he's just a deva who's, uh, who's just enjoying um, sensual experiences. And his whole point or her whole point, depending upon uh, how you see Mara, is to, to attract people or all beings towards the sensual realm. Um, the whole point there is not to get beyond that. And to get beyond that is to go through the process of jhana. When you get through the process of jhana, you start to become in, you start to see the emptiness of all sensual experience. Because what you see is the five physical senses, they create through the process of dependent origination an experience. And this experience being dependent upon the five physical sense spaces is also impermanent because of the fact that it's dependent. But when you get into jhana, you come into an experience of 
seclusion from sensual pleasures, seclusion from unwholesome states. And when we talk about seclusion from unwholesome pleasures or sensual pleasures in general, what we're saying is you're experiencing a, another level of happiness. This is a super mundane level of happiness that you experience in the form of piti and sukha. That is to say, joy and comfort of body, and tranquility, equanimity, and so on from the first jhana onwards. And this experience of the first jhana shows you that there is a joy beyond the five physical pleasures, the five physical senses. And so you start to see the emptiness, the hollowness, the deceptiveness, as the Buddha puts it, the illusoriness of uh, physical sensual pleasures. And it's because of these unwholesome mental states, uh, or rather because of these sensual pleasures, unwholesome mental states arise. Because you identify with the body and you identify with the physical senses, or you even identify with the mind itself and you start to covet things or you start to covet experiences. That's another way of saying longing or craving, or you have aversion, or you have a sense of identity of who you are and who you are not based on your likes and dislikes. This happens through the process of clinging independent origination. So all of these are dependent upon sensual and even mental experiences, because as we will see, even jhana can be a state which you can identify with and cause the mind to start to cling to and, and become prideful and conceited and all kinds of things. And this uh, taking of the jhana personal, this process of identifying with the jhana causes the mind to stay in that particular jhana because it either enjoys it too much or thinks that it's the ultimate when in fact it's still within the realm of conditioned reality. So the Buddha continues, he says, there in bhikkhus, a noble disciple considers thus sensual pleasures here and now and sensual pleasures in lives to come, sensual perceptions here and now and sensual perceptions in lives to come constitute an obstruction to a noble disciple in training here. Suppose I were to abide with the mind abundant and exalted, having transcended the world and made a firm determination with the mind. So in other words, here, somebody who is practicing leading up to the fourth jhana, when we talk about what he's going to be talking about really is the fourth jhana onwards. So he's talking about the imperturbable. The imperturbable is always referred to as uh, regards to the fourth jhana in regards to also what is known as beautiful. So here somebody abides with the mind that is abundant and exalted, having transcended the world and having transcended the six sense spaces and their experiences by no longer paying attention to contact, uh, physical contact, and rather staying with the fourth jhana, which is that super mundane state. When I do so, there will be no more evil, unwholesome mental states, such as covetousness, ill will and presumption in me. And with the abandoning of them, my mind will be unlimited, immeasurable, and well-developed. Now, what he's talking about here when he says, once he abandons these different hindrances, you get into a state of jhana. And as you get towards the imperturbable, 
your mind becomes rid of barriers. Your mind flows. It stays with its object of meditation for quite a long time, relatively speaking, before it does get distracted and you use that whole process of the six R's to come back again. And then it develops the immeasurable, which is to say it gets ready to become more expansive and start to experience infinite space, as we'll see when it radiates any of the Brahma Viharas. When he practices in this way and frequently abides thus, his mind acquires confidence in this space. Once there is full confidence, he either attains to the imperturbable now, or else he resolves upon it with wisdom. On the dissolution of the body after death, it is possible that the evolving consciousness may pass on in the imperturbable. This bhikkhus is declared to be the first way directed to the imperturbable. So he says, he either attains to the imperturbable or else he resolves upon it with wisdom. So either what happens is you experience the four jhana and then you take that four jhana to be me, mine, or myself. And you really enjoy it. You have self-confidence in it. You're really enjoying it and having this flow of mind in the fourth jhana as it takes its object of meditation, keeps the attention on the object of meditation without any effort. Or you see through it and understand that this fourth jhana is just a step towards nibbana. It's not the ultimate. And you see through it, which is to say you see it as being impersonal. You don't take it personally. You see it as impermanent because it arose because of causes and conditions. It arose because of an intention. And then there was a state in which the attention was resting on the object of meditation for quite some time. There was a process in which the, in the factors of the previous jhanas started to dissipate. And there comes this experience of jhana. When you see it in this way, the mind doesn't take it to be personal doesn't take it to be permanent and moves on either towards the next level of the imperturbable or even experiences Nibbana. There can be, there have been uh, situations where even from the first jhana onwards, upon seeing the jhana as being empty of self, upon seeing the jhana as being impermanent, the mind inclines towards cessation and by doing so experiences Nibbana. Again, bhikkhus, a noble disciple considers thus, there are sensual pleasures here and now and sensual pleasures in lives to come. Sensual pleasures here, sensual perceptions here and now and sensual perceptions in lives to come. Whatever material form there is, all material form is the four great elements and the material form derived from the four great elements. When he practices in this way and frequently abides thus, his mind acquires confidence in this space. Once there is full confidence, he attains to the imperturbable now, or else he resolves upon it with wisdom. On the dissolution of the body after death, it is possible that the evolving consciousness may pass on to rebirth in the imperturbable. This bhikkhus is declared to be the second way directed to the imperturbable. 
What's important to understand here is that now we are getting into the territory of what's known as the Arupa Janas. The Arupa Janas are also known as the Ayatanas. Ayatana means base or realm or sphere. And it also can be in the context of the six sense bases. The, the Salat, Salat Ayatana are basically the six sense bases. So the Ayatana of infinite space is what the Buddha is talking about here. And why is that? Because he says, here somebody experiences and understands sensual pleasures as being impermanent sees sensual perceptions being impermanent and sees material form as well uh, being impermanent. So this is a natural process. You don't have to intend upon it in the same way that you would investigate and analyze and think about it. It happens gradually. It happens naturally. When the conditions are right, there will be the experience of infinite space. And it's done through the experience of radiating in the six directions, loving kindness or compassion. When you do this, you are no longer with the physical body. Your experience, the contact, the feeling, the perception, the attention, it's now rooted in just the mental realm. Now there is only the mentality, which is an experience of the formless realms, the arupa jhanas, or the formless ayatanas, as they are called. Now, if you get attached to this, that is to say, you really like it and you make this a big deal and you say, this is wonderful, rather than uh, staying with your object, what happens is the mind sees it and says, wow, this is amazing. This infinite space that the mind is experiencing is a wonderful experience and it truly is. But if you make a big deal of, out of it and if you allow the mind to stay attached to it, you're not going to move on further. And it can happen, as the Buddha says, that the attachment to this state can lead to rebirth in the Arupa realm of infinite space. So one either sees and attains the imperturbable or experiences it with wisdom, meaning seeing it as being impermanent and just allows the process to happen. You see, what, what's happening with the jhana practice is if you're truly experiencing it in the way that causes you to release and let go, there is this meta-awareness, so to speak, a metacognition, so to speak. And what that means is the mind is watching how the attention is moving in these different jhanic states, whether it's rupa or arupa, rather than watching it being in the state. In other words, rather than experiencing it as a self that is experiencing this jhana or the arupa jhanas, it is just watching itself. It's like mind is watching mind. The attention is just on how attention moves, whether it's from the object of meditation to a hindrance or to seeing a factor of the jhanas. If you see the factor of infinite space and experiencing infinite space, that's one experience, but you become distracted and you have to 6R that. Just know that, yes, there is an experience of infinite space, but return back to the experience are radiating loving kindness or compassion. Now, later on, when you develop the jhana, you can switch back and forth and you can see when you are radiating loving kindness or compassion, there's a softer, gentler feeling, especially with compassion. And you switch your gaze, so to speak, you switch your attention to just the radiating and seeing the infinite space. 
you might actually experience a sense of that infinite space. You'll experience this sense of floating and an infinitude of space without any borders. It depends on where your attention is. But in that process of having your attention on infinite space, if you get attached to it, as we said, you will uh, not progress further. And you will just see that as being the ultimate rather than letting go and experiencing a higher state or experiencing even possibly cessation and then experiencing Nibbana. Again, bhikkhus, a noble disciple, considers thus sensual pleasures here and now and sensual pleasures in lives to come. Sensual perceptions here and now and sensual perceptions in lives to come. Material forms here and now and material forms in lives to come. Perceptions of forms here and now and perceptions of forms in lives to come. Both alike are impermanent. What is impermanent is not worth delighting in, not worth welcoming, not worth holding on to. When he practices in this way and abides, frequently abides thus, his mind acquires confidence in this space. Once there is full confidence, he either attains the imperturbable now or else he resolves upon it with wisdom. On the dissolution of the body after death, it is possible that the evolving consciousness may pass on to rebirth in the imperturbable. This bhikkhus is declared to be the third way directed to the imperturbable. So now what you are seeing or what you will see in infinite consciousness, because what he's talking about now is infinite consciousness, the different arising and passing away of sensory experiences through the eye, through the ear, through the nose, through, through the tongue, through the skin, or through the mind. And what that means is it's not happening at the level of the physical sense bases. There is an internal contact at the level of mind that is perceiving, that is to say, mental awareness or mental consciousnesses, cognizing the arising and passing away of various sensory consciousnesses. So when you do this, this perception of forms is not just material form, but this perception of forms is seeing the flickering. You might see in your periphery of your mental vision, a ring of light, and it starts to scatter, or you might start to see different flickers or concentric circles. If the formations that are rooted in the ear faculty are stronger, maybe you're a musician or you use your ears more, you might have more refined hearing and the contact, internal contact in the ear base experiences some kind of flickering. Or it can happen through the nose. You might smell phantom uh, odors and fragrances. Might happen through the tongue. Some people experience like uh, jolts of electricity zipping through the tongue or even some phantom tastes. Some people experience something on the skin. But you have to understand all of that is mental. You might experience heat. You might experience tingling, you might experience other things. All of that is happening in the mentality, it's internal contact, it has nothing to do with the body. Seeing this as impermanent, you also see that the arising and passing away of these is not worth holding on to because they are liable to cause suffering if you hold on to it and not worth seeing as self. Because in infinite consciousness, when you see the arising and passing away of consciousnesses, 
even mental consciousness, which is to say you start to see the gaps between thoughts and you start to realize that this process is not in anyone's control. It's arising because of causes and conditions. And it becomes tiresome after a while. But if you hold on to this experience, then you are not going to progress further. If you take this experience where you are actually radiating joy and not looking at radiating joy, but rather your attention is now in all of these different multifaceted experiences, then you become attached to it and you think that that's the ultimate. So let go of that. See it as being a process, a natural, gradual process of unfolding. What you are doing invariably when you go through these processes is getting to levels of cessation. So what I mean by that is when you see jhanas as levels of cessation, what you're seeing now that we're talking about the arupa jhanas, when we talk about the fourth jhana, it is the cessation of the experience of the third jhana. And there is a tranquilizing of bodily formations. The breath becomes imperceptible. Your uh, body becomes lighter. You don't really feel it unless there is some kind of contact from the external world, unless there's like a fly hitting your hand or wind if you're outside uh, rubbing against your face or whatever it might be. But other than that, there is no experience of the physicality. So it is the cessation of that. When you get to infinite space, there is a cessation of the experience of the equanimity in the fourth jhana that you experience, in the fourth form jhana, the rupa jhana. When you get into infinite consciousness, there is a cessation of the perception of infinite space. And now the compassion that's there in infinite space changes to joy. And this joy, as we talked about before, is just joy. It's a very contented joy. We talk about it as empathetic joy, sympathetic joy, or altruistic joy. So if you hold on to this, the mind might become attached to it. And as the Buddha says, it is possible that the evolving consciousness may pass on to rebirth in this particular realm. Those beings who have uh, gone through this process and become attached to it, especially through one-pointed concentration, one-pointed focus, they see that as the ultimate. A lot of times when you see infinite space or infinite consciousness, that can be mistaken to be an experience of unification between what is considered to be the self and the universe. There is this experience that is quite exhilarating, quite profound, but ultimately it is in conditioned reality. Then he goes on to say, Again, bhikkhus, a noble disciple considers thus, sensual pleasures here and now and sensual pleasures in lives to come, sensual perceptions here and now and sensual perceptions in lives to come, material forms here and now and material forms in lives to come, perceptions of form here and now and perceptions of forms in lives to come and perceptions of the imperturbable, impertur imperturbable, all are perceptions. When these perceptions cease without remainder, that is the peaceful, that is the sublime, namely the base of nothingness. When he practices in this way and frequently abides thus, 
his mind acquires confidence in this space. Once there is full confidence, he either attains to the base of nothingness now, or else he resolves upon it with wisdom. On the dissolution of the body, after death, it is possible that the evolving consciousness may pass on to rebirth in the base of nothingness. This bhikkhus is declared to be the first way directed to the base of nothingness. So now the Buddha is making a delineation here. When he's talking about the fourth jhana, when he's talking about infinite space and infinite consciousness, he calls that to be the imperturbable. But then he's not going to talk about nothingness as a separate category and neither perception nor non-perception as a separate category. But it's important to understand that all of these are happening within the realm of the fourth jhana when it comes to the practice. So when you get to the fourth jhana, that is the base upon which you then experience infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. And here what the Buddha is saying is one sees the perceptions of form, one sees in terms of the perceptions of different kinds of mental activity that might happen, and the perceptions of the imperturbable. And what that means is when you get to infinite consciousness, when you see the flickering or whatever it might be, eventually that slows down. And now the mind becomes more attentive to the gaps between each flicker. And these gaps are basically the cessation of the perceptions of the imperturbable, the perception of the or the cessation of the perception of infinite consciousness. And as the gaps widen, you start to get deeper into or towards the level of nothingness. And eventually, some people have an experience of just dropping down into that experience of nothingness. Some people see complete slowing down and stilling of the mind. And there is this pristine, very exquis exquisite silence that is the nothingness. Now, when you're in nothingness, all external realities in terms of the thoughts about what's happening in the outside world cease. Now the mind sees, sees within itself. Now the mind is experiencing very deep equanimity, which is tied to the experience of nothingness. Now, if you take this to be personal, that is to say, you make a big deal out of it and say, wow, this is amazing. I'm just going to stay here. You won't move forward. But if you allow the mind to naturally unfold through this process of the jhanas, through the path to nibbana, then you get into higher states, as we'll see. Or you might experience with wisdom the experience of cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness right there and then. There are those who have experienced cessation just by having radiated equanimity, and then at a certain point, suddenly, everything stopped for a bit, and then they came back online and experienced Nibbana. They saw the links of dependent origination. So there are those who have experienced cessation from nothingness as well. Again, bhikkhus, a noble disciple, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, considers thus, this is void of a self or of what belongs to a self. When he practices in this way and frequently abides thus, his mind acquires confidence in this space. Once there is full confidence, he either attains 
to the base of nothingness now, or else he resolves upon it with wisdom. On the dissolution of the body after death, it is possible that the evolving consciousness may pass on to rebirth in the base of nothingness. This bhikkhus is declared to be the second way directed to the base of nothingness. Now, this is an instruction for advanced practitioners in the sense of, Buddha is talking about a noble disciple. When he talks about a noble disciple, he's talking about basically the Arya Savaka, who can be a Sotapanna onwards. So when you get to this practice, you can start experimenting with yourself. And one of the pathways towards the experience of nothingness is to see the emptiness of all conditioned reality. It's an experience of anatta, which naturally happens when you see the arising and passing away of consciousnesses at infinite consciousness. But it can also be done in a way where you start to just reflect and see. You don't have to investigate, but you're just observing and seeing it as an impermanent process, seeing it as an impersonal process. So some people have a very deep experience of anatta, and when they go sit down for meditation, their mind immediately goes to the base of nothingness, immediately quiets down and experiences this deep equanimity. So you can try it for yourself and start to see the different processes of the mind and the body, start to see the external world around you and see it as being impersonal. And when you do it, uh, quite consistently. When you see this throughout your day, your mind you see is very silent, very tranquil. It doesn't cling on to anything. It doesn't stick to anything. It just stays in this level of nothingness. It just stays in this base of nothingness and in this experience of equanimity. So when this practice is done of the emptiness of self, it is one way to get to nothingness. But there is another way as well, as we'll see. Again, Bhikkhus, a noble disciple, considers thus. I am not anything belonging to anyone anywhere, nor is there anything belonging to me in anyone anywhere. When he, frequently pra when he practices in this way and frequently abides thus, his mind acquires confidence in this space. Once there is full confidence... He either attains to the base of nothingness now, or else he resolves upon it with wisdom. On the dissolution of the body after death, it is possible that the evolving consciousness may pass on to rebirth in the base of nothingness. This bhikkhus is declared to be the third way directed to the base of nothingness. So when they talk about I am not belong I am not anything belonging to anyone anywhere nor is there anything belonging to me in anyone anywhere this is a deeper level of anatta a deeper level of experience of anatta and emptiness that is to say you see the not self of relationships you see the not self of possessions you know the the aggravation and the irritation mental movements that arise because of relationships and things happening in relationships, even whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, can cause the mind agitation in one way or another. But once you start to see that, you know, this is not my father, this is not my mother, this is not my son, this is not my house, this is, this is not my land, this is not my clothes, you see it all as just being, having arisen, even your parents 
even your children, even your friendships, even your relationships, all arising because of various circumstances, causes, conditions, and choices. And so you unravel those and see that if you personalize, take personal relationships, there is an expectation and anticipation of it to be a certain way. This causes mental agitation in the mind, which causes restlessness and anxiety and all kinds of craving. But if you see this as all being impersonal, you have loving kindness in your relationships, you have compassion in your relationships, you have mudita or altruistic joy in your relationships, you have equanimity in your relationships, then those relationships will not only flower, but they will develop for the sake of experiencing deeper happiness, experiencing deeper satisfaction, and ultimately seeing with wisdom uh, the non-attachment to those relationships. You are content and you have no expectations, and this causes the mind deep equanimity. When you see it in this way, which is to say the not-self, the anatta of all relationships, then, then your mind experiences this base of nothingness. So this is one way to get there as well. Now we're going to get into the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Again, bhikkhus, a noble disciple considers thus, sensual pleasures here and now and sensual pleasures in lives to come. Sensual perceptions here and now and sensual perceptions in lives to come. Material forms here and now and material forms in lives to come. Perceptions of form here and now and perceptions of forms in lives to come. Perceptions of the imperturbable and perceptions of the base of nothingness. All are perceptions. Where these perceptions cease without remainder, that is the peaceful, that is the sublime, namely the base of neither perception nor non-perception. When he practices in this way and frequently abides thus, his mind acquires confidence in this space. Once there is full confidence, he either attains to the base of neither perception nor non-perception now, or else he resolves upon it with wisdom. On dissolution of the body after death, it is possible that the evolving consciousness may pass on to the rebirth in the base of neither perception nor non-perception. This bhikkhus is declared to be the way directed to the base of neither perception nor non-perception. So what the Buddha really here, what we want to look at is the perceptions of the imperturbable and the perceptions of the base of nothingness. All are perceptions. And when we talk about perception, what we're talking about is the memory aspect of the mind, the mind that recognizes, the mind that notes, the mind that labels. When I see this computer screen, I recognize it to be a computer screen because I have seen it before. It's rooted in memory. So perception is that aspect of the mind that labels something as this color or this quality. When you have an experience of feeling, it can be pleasant, painful, or neutral. And the quality of that feeling, of saying that this feeling is pleasant, that noting of that is perception. In the same way, when you are in jhanas up until the level of nothingness, 
you have a perception that you are at this base of infinite space or at this base of infinite consciousness or at this base of nothingness. And you experience along with those, the corresponding Brahma Viharas. So you have the perception of compassion in infinite space. You have the perception of joy in infinite consciousness, and you have the perception of equanimity in nothingness. These are all perceptions. These are all recognition of the mind seeing and cognizing what is present. When you get to neither perception or non-perception, you let go of that. What happens is at this level of nothingness, there comes a point where when you're radiating equanimity, that ceases as well. And when you try to radiate again, there's a slight tension uh, felt in the mind in the form of not wanting to continue doing that. Now the mind is very satisfied in ceasing all of these coarser perceptions. At that point, you take the quiet mind. When you take the quiet mind, this quiet mind is just deep collectedness that you have. This quiet mind doesn't have any quality except of just knowing it being there. It's, there's nothing there. There's nothing to hold on to. And so in that sense, there's nothing to perceive. And so when you are in neither perception nor non-perception, there's no recognition going on. There's no memory going on. When you're at the first level of quiet mind, so to speak, there might be coarser impressions of formations. You might start to see into different past lives. You might start to see different images. You might start to see different patterns. But these are very inconsistent sort of proto-thoughts. They're not fully formed. They're not fully recognized. And so you just let them go. And you let them go by letting the mind automatically, 6R, you just release it. You keep releasing and relaxing. And the mind gets quieter and quieter and quieter until there's nothing but this absolute silence of the quiet mind. And in that, there is no perception but there's still the perception that there is the quiet mind. There is still the perception that there is the stillness. So it's neither perception nor non-perception. And so if somebody is experiencing neither perception or non-perception, and then let's say they become attached to that, that uh, experience, and they go on and, and at death, it's quite possible that the, the rebirth that occurs will happen in the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. And in neither perception or non-perception, there's absolutely nothing going on there in the way of something that can be recognized. You can't fully recognize contact. You can't fully recognize perception. You can't fully recognize perception. You can't really recognize intention you can't fully recognize any kind of cognition, but there's still a sense of awareness of existence. There's still an awareness of some kind of consciousness. There's still an iota of awareness tied to the experience of the base of either perception, non-perception. So what that is, is the subtlest formation of conceit, that formation of I am, I exist, that is dependent upon this idea of there is an self there still. When that is let go of, 
then there is the experience of cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. So when you are in your meditation and you come upon the quiet mind, see the quiet mind as being impersonal as well and continue to just be there. There comes a point where the mind might fluctuate. The attention might fluctuate. Either it becomes bored because there's nothing going on and so it starts to spout out different things in the way of restlessness. Or uh, it, got, it gets bored and starts to get dull. And what happens is when it gets dull, certain thoughts come up, certain other objects come up. And then eventually, before you know it, the mind is now in slot and torpor. When you have too much energy and restlessness, you balance it out with slight intention of the enlightenment factors related to tranquility. So you have the mindfulness, you have the, the tranquility, you have the equanimity, and you have the collectedness. If the mind has any kind of slot and torpor, you focus your attention a little bit by having more interest in the object, having more interest in seeing the quiet mind. And this experience brings about a little bit of joy, a little bit of that interest from the investigative factor. And it brings up a little bit of energy. So the mind now becomes sharper and more attentive to the quiet mind. Eventually, when everything comes into balance, there is just a full flow of quiet mind. And then because of no more fuel or anything to land upon in terms of the attention, because of no more fuel in terms of the sense of I am, everything is dropped, everything ceases, and there is the experience of cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. And now the Buddha goes on, or the Sutta goes on, when this was said, the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, here Bhikkhu is practicing thus, it might not be, and it might not be mine. It will not be, and it will not be mine. What exists, what has come to be, that I am abandoning. Thus he obtains equanimity. Venerable Sir, does such a Bhikkhu attain Nibbana? So this process of practicing thus, he says, it might not be, and it might not be mine. It will not be, and it will not be mine. What exists, what has come to be, that I'm abandoning. What he's talking about is formations. He's talking about different kinds of formations that the mind can clutch onto. Oftentimes, there might be different kinds of disconnected thoughts and patterns and ideas and concepts and then the mind becomes interested in that. As soon as the mind becomes interested in that, it comes out of neither perception or non-perception and starts to follow that line of thinking. When that happens, now you are taking that to be self. You're taking the formation of I am and personalizing it, taking it personal. And now the mind is no longer in equanimity, no longer collected, no longer disenchanted, no longer dispassionate. But if you see these formations arise and you just let them go, use the 6R process and just let them go, then the mind develops further, more refined equanimity that comes in the form of disenchantment, that comes in the form of dispassion. And what exists, what has come to be that I'm abandoning, that can also be extended to be saying, taking or rather abandoning and letting go of any kind of idea of a self in any of the aggregates, specifically formations, because at this point in the practice itself, you only have the mentality 
and any formations that arise are just quickly let go of. It's almost automatic. As soon as something arises, as soon as you see the tiniest vibration, you just let go of it. And then you acquire equanimity. When you talk about equanimity here, I'm going to say that it's not the equanimity you experience in nothingness. It's an equanimity that is in the form of dispassion, disenchantment and dispassion. So then the Buddha says, one bhikkhu here, Ananda, might attain Nibbana. Another bhikkhu here might not attain Nibbana. And so Ananda asks, what is the cause and reason, Venerable Sir, why one bhikkhu here might attain Nibbana, while another bhikkhu here might not attain Nibbana? Here, Ananda, a bhikkhu is practicing thus, it might not be, and it might not be mine. It will not be, and it will not be mine. What exists, what has come to be, that I am abandoning. Thus he obtains equanimity. He delights in that equanimity, welcomes it, and remains holding on to it. As he does so, his consciousness becomes dependent on it and clings to it. A bhikkhu with clinging ananda does not attain nibbana. But, venerable sir, when that bhikkhu clings, what does he cling to? To the base of neither perception nor non-perception, Ananda. When that bhikkhu clings, Venerable Sir, it seems he clings to the best object of clinging. When that bhikkhu clings, Ananda, he clings to the best object of clinging. Or this is the best object of clinging, namely the base of neither perception nor non-perception. This state is so refined that there's, there's still something that can happen in terms of clinging. But once you go beyond the state, there's nothing to cling on to. But in the state of quiet mind, in the state of neither perception and non-perception, the mind can still identify with the quiet mind. And when you do that, then you are no longer in the base and you're starting to cling to that. When the mind becomes disenchanted and dispassionate, there is a tendency, there can be a tendency for the mind to take that as the ultimate and then see everything as dispassionate. But that's still not the ultimate because it's still within conditioned reality. When you cease any kind of identification with this process, whether it's the quiet mind, whether it's the disenchantment or the dispassion, then there is the natural unfolding, the natural progression into the cessation of perception, feeling, and consciousness. And there is no clinging there at all. There's no holding on to anything there at all. And when one comes out of it, one sees the links of dependent origination and experiences nirvana. So this is why it's known as the best object of clinging, because it's the most refined, whether it's in the practice or whether it's in the realms, in the 31 realms of existence. Then the Buddha goes on to say, here, Ananda, a bhikkhu is practicing thus. It might not be, and it might not be mine. It will not be, and it will not be mine. What exists, what has come to be, that I am abandoning. Thus he obtains equanimity. He does not delight in that equanimity, welcome it, or remain holding to it. Since he does not do so, his consciousness does not become dependent on it and does not cling to it. A bhikkhu without clinging ananda attains nibbana. So when you let go of the subtlest formation of conceit, the subtlest formation of I am, then there is experience of cessation. And from that cessation, you 
start to see something because your mind becomes so pure. Your mindfulness becomes so sharp that it's starting to, starting to see as the links of uh, dependent origination arise and pass away without attachment, without identification. And because of not grasping, there is the experience of Nibbana. Now, one uh, important piece of advice here is when you are in the eight jhana, when you are in neither perception or non-perception, it's important to reflect back. Spend a couple of minutes after you come out of your practice with your eyes closed, start to see, just let the mind intend and retrospectively look at what happened. When that happens, you might start to see different things and all you have to do is 6R. This makes the mind more purified and more clarified and it sharpens the mindfulness so that it's even sharper when it experiences the links of dependent origination. So Ananda says, it is wonderful, venerable sir. It is marvelous. The blessed one indeed has explained to us the crossing of the flood in dependence upon one support or another. In other words, he's saying, you've explained us the way to get to Nibbana through this gradual process of unfolding through these different levels of cessation dependent upon the other, dependent upon cofactors. But venerable sir, what is noble liberation? Here, Ananda, a noble disciple, considers thus, sensual pleasures here and now and sensual pleasures in lives to come. Sensual perceptions here and now and sensual perceptions in lives to come. Perceptions of form here and now and perceptions of forms in lives to come. Perceptions of the imperturbable Perceptions of the base of nothingness and perceptions of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. This is an identity as far as identity extends. This is the deathless, namely the liberation of the mind through not clinging. As I said, that I am formation. This is the identity as far as identity extends. When you let go of that, you experience the unconditioned. You experience the cessation of all conditions in the form of perception, feeling, and consciousness, and the mind becomes liberated through not grasping, through not clinging. So that noble liberation really is pointing towards arahatship, towards full awakening, where the mind, when it comes back online, doesn't even hold on to any of that experience of joy and relief and seeing it as mine. It just sees that whole process of impersonal impersonality. It sees it as being impersonal. And so when that happens, there's no clinging in the form of conceit. There's no clinging in the form of ignorance. And so when those fetters drop and the other fetters dependent upon that drop, that is the restlessness, the craving for form, the craving for the formless and the ignorance, obviously, then there is the complete dissolution of the, the, the fetters there is the completely uh, complete destruction of craving, the complete destruction of identification, and that is the liberation of the mind through not clinging. Thus, Ananda, I have taught the way directed to the imperturbable. I have taught the way directed to the base of nothingness. I have taught the way directed to the base of neither perception nor non-perception. I have taught the crossing of the flood in dependence upon one support or the other, I have taught noble liberation. 
what should be done for his disciples out of compassion by a teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them, that I have done for you, Ananda. There are these roots of trees, these empty huts. Meditate, Ananda. Do not delay or else you will regret it later. This is our instruction to you. Any questions, comments, remarks? Hey, Delson, you might want to uh, talk about that little um, experiment or, um, well, experiment practice that we did with you um, a few weeks ago, how we sat in a circle. It, it, it could be done... Um, perhaps by other people, or at least for them to, you know, watch their mind in that way. Yeah, so what we did was we, uh, we sat in a little circle and we went through Majjhima Nikaya 111, but we didn't go through it completely. What we did was we stopped at the first jhana or any of the jhanas and picked out the different details. So in there, Sariputta sees the different factors of the jhanas. He sees... For example, in the first jhana, he sees the vittaka and vichara. He sees the uh, joy. He sees the comfort of the body. He sees the, um, well, what he sees really is the five aggregates in the form of mentality and materiality. He sees the contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention. He sees mind. He sees enthusiasm. He sees the decision. He sees the uh, he sees the chanda and so on. So all of these different factors, what we did was we started looking at them. And so we read it, uh, understood it, then went into the practice. We went into the practice and then we saw it bit by bit. So what you were doing was you weren't becoming the jhana. You weren't the mind experiencing the jhana. All it was is seeing how the mind experiences as it arises and passes away, the contact, seeing the contact of mind with loving kindness, for example, seeing the feeling of loving kindness, seeing the perception of loving kindness, seeing how mind intends towards loving kindness, seeing how attention stays on loving kindness, seeing all of these different cofactors when they arise. The point here is not to look for them, not to investigate in the form of analyzing and trying to see and anticipating and expecting them. It's just to see when they arise and pass away. So that seeing the impermanence of that, one immediately lets go of any attachment to the jhana and goes on to the next jhana. So we did this for each of the four jhanas. And then later on, we did it with another group and we did, we went through each of the eight jhanas and, um, they all, they all had a wonderful experience. I think David can talk a little bit about his experience when we did that. Oh, oh thanks. Just give it over to me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, well, um, I thought it was really interesting because what you did was, uh, well, we set a timer and you said, okay, everybody just go into the first jhana. I was like, oh, sure. Yeah, I'll just go right into the first jhana. But in fact, you actually did, because what you're doing is you said, 
just observe the factors that you had laid out from the sutta in the jhana. You know, if there's unification, if there's joy, if there's, uh, you know, any of these other factors, see if that's there. And it's almost like as you watch things, the jhana came up by itself because you, were no, you weren't trying to get it to happen. It was just happening on its own. And it's almost like the mind said, oh, okay, um, fine, I'll, I'll do it for you. You know, as long as you don't, you know, yell at me or anything. And uh, it did come up. And so then we went around the circle and we talked about what we saw. And then he says, well, okay, we're going to do the second jhana. And um, so we did the second jhana. We did our 10-minute thing. And, you know, one thing, you know, I'll, I'll point out to the group, which I'll, uh, you know, I pointed out to Delson and the others was sometimes when you're first starting, is um, hold on, this person. <laughs> Sometimes when you're first um, starting with the meta, the meta can kind of come up to the head, but it's really, and you say, "Oh well, that must be the fourth jhana." But no, no, it's not. You don't just go whoom like that. There's a process of going through those jhanas, and you know, first my the meta was in my heart, and then it then it jumped up into my head. I thought, well, that's really light. And what happened to the other ones in between? Well, then I noticed it kind of went back down or, or it, it was there, um, and but it was changed. You know, it had changed into a quieter and there was the second jhana. And then, the, then you continued another 10 minutes, the timer goes off, okay, and we talk about it. Third jhana. And then uh, just watching the mind going on, third john's not going to come up well it did and uh equanimity was there quietness the body was kind of disappeared you know all the factors were there and then all of a sudden it just goes from down here to goes whoop, and then it's up here in the head it was just such a clear um moving of the jhana um that it was really helpful to see that whole process and uh, I missed the second session, so I can't tell you about the rest <laughs> the next day. But um, just watching your process, watching your mind and not necessarily pushing it along was really helpful. So, Anybody else got anything? Hey, Delson. Yes. Uh, this is John Mott. I'm sorry. I have barking dogs all mute when they, uh, <laughs> when they come up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I'm really interested in, in the, one of the most powerful things about the practice for me has been the insights um, and just sort of the way that the mind works and, and, and the way that that intersects with the world. And that's, that's been the most powerful part. All of the stuff that happens, it arises and passes away phenomenon and, I don't even pay attention to that anymore. It's just there's layer upon layer upon thing where I go, oh, that's how the mind works. Oh, oh, wow. There's another thing I didn't see. And I'm just curious, um, sort of the insights that you've gained, because you're obviously very far along and I have a great deal of respect for that. So I'll, I'll mic up and you don't. So you want to know the kind of things that uh, I've experienced in the jhanas you're saying? Uh, 
what you, uh, insight that you, that you gained? Well, I think the most important insight here is to see the impersonal nature of the jhana themselves. So in other words, you know, you don't take it personally. You don't even take the object of meditation personally. It, the, even the object of meditation, let's say when you first start out with loving kindness, or if you have uh, radiating compassion or whatever it might be, that arises because of an intention. That arises because of different arising of causes and conditions that include the different factors of mentality and materiality, but that's all impersonal as well. So even though it seems like your you or the self is intending the loving kindness, just because uh, it seems like it is, it's not really you who is doing it. So that comes about later and you start to see and reflect and understand that even this process of jhana, as long as you're not pushing, as long as you're allowing it to happen and unfold naturally, you start to get this deeper insight on in the uh, into the impersonal nature of jhana themselves. Thank you. You're welcome. Delson, Frank Denuso, can you hear me? Yes, hello. Thank you. Thank you for your talk today as well. Uh, I have a question regarding you were talking at one point about having mind as the object of meditation and uh, adjusting for sloth and torpor or restlessness to the opposite. I seem to have uh, trouble at doing that. I'm kind of behind the like three steps behind by the time I recognize what's going on. It's kind of too late. Right. I've already been overtaken by torpor and I, sometimes I can get back. Sometimes I can't, I have to walk. And but I, I would like for you to detail a little bit more what you mean by take a greater interest in your object of meditation. It sounds so simple and it seems so easy yet when I'm there and not so much, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one example would be, did you have a favorite subject in school? Uh, I do arts, the arts of any type, right. you know? Right. And when you have a favorite subject, when you do any kind of arts, when you're doing any kind of creativity, uh, do you have to, do you have to make like a, make an effort to do something or does it just flow because you have natural interest in it? Indeed. I've heard this talked about before. It does seem to just flow. It's, it's much less, it takes much less effort to do that because you're enjoying yourself because you like the subject because you're yeah. into the subject much more. Yeah. In the same way, when you have slot and torpor or even restlessness, it's happening because of boredom. That's really the underlying factor here, the boredom. Eventually what happens is because you come to this very subtle level of mind, there's no longer any kind of sensory input or very little, if at all, but actually in the quiet mind, it's just all mentality. So because there's nothing going on, the mind isn't used to it. The mind is used to having all kinds of sensory activity going on. I mean, right now, there's millions and millions and millions of different arising and passing away of sensory consciousnesses because you're listening to me, you're watching the screen, your mind might be reflecting on what's going on, you're sitting in the chair and so on and so forth. So, so when you come to that quiet mind, all of that dissipates, all of that is quieted down and the mind 
being used to that no longer has any stimuli, no longer has any kind of thing that's going on. So when it sees itself, it starts to become disinterested. When it becomes mind-watching mind, eventually it just becomes bored of that. So the way to bring up that joyful interest, the way to bring up that interest into your object of uh, meditation, in this case being the quiet mind, is really being able to, first and foremost, when you see that the mind has gone into slot and torpor, that's a good step because first you've recognized that there is slot and torpor present. That immediately brings back your mindfulness. Recognizing itself is mindfulness in action. When you recognize it and you release it, and now you start to have an intention of just, just tightening a little bit, tightening a little bit your focus, your, your attention on the object of meditation, in this case with the mind. So it's like, let's say, you know, maybe for, for me, for example, when I was in school, mathematics was my least favorite subject and I wouldn't pay attention to it at all. I had no interest in it at all. I didn't know anything about numbers and calculus and this and that. So I never really paid attention to it. But when it came to things like literature and writing, my mind was effortless when it came to just looking at it because there was a tightening of attention. But when I was in mathematics class, my attention was all over the place because it had become so loose. So this tightening of that, when you see, when you're doing whatever creative work you're doing, you see there's a, there's a collectedness there. There's a collecting of attention in one thing at a time. You're, you're, you're doing one thing at a time, but it seems like it's flowing. So in that same quality of feeling is the, that quality of feeling when I say tightening your focus a little bit, tightening your attention. And if I understood what you just said, recognition is the first step in yes. that process, correct? So that's a good place yes. to start, right? Yes, okay. Yeah, as soon as you, yeah, as soon as you recognize, you're already making the effort that effort then brings up energy, brings up a little bit of interest already. Because of that activity, it dissipates the slot and torpor. And now all you have to do is intend collecting the mind around mind itself again. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Dawson. You're welcome. Hey, let me jump in here with uh, some plugs here for some of the work we've been doing with Delson over the last few weeks. As you can see behind me, uh, he's been being interviewed by Venerable Karuna, who's with us under a different name. Hi, Liam. How you doing? There he is. And uh, we've got, uh, we did some sessions with, um, we just put out 31 Planes of Existence, where Delson goes through all of the planes and talks about them. Uh, we put out, um, the first one was about his background and uh, talking about TWIM. Uh, next one was about some upcoming brain research that is happening in the Netherlands. And uh, then we talked about uh, mindfulness and what is the, really the meaning of mindfulness and what is TWAM and what are the jhanas um, more detail, the concentration versus, you know, the jhanas that we know of. Um, Kind of, you know, I think Delson, you're starting to call them Sutta Jhanas. Actually, it's kind of an interesting, good name. Um, and yeah. some other things. So there's going to be an, about seven different videos that are coming out, and some of them are out. And just check Bonte's channel, and I'm posting everything there. And it's plus it's on our front page. So a lot of interesting stuff. Plus, uh, I'll add 
we made a video with most frequently answered uh, asked questions, frequently answered, frequently asked and answered questions. And we wrote down a whole list, uh, combining the uh, list from our site and the Sutta Foundation site and Suttavada Foundation site and uh, anything else we could think of. And um, uh, Karuna asked Delson his opinion, what were the answers to all those questions like trying too hard and can't find the feeling and, and uh, many of those things. And, and it's about a half hour. I think it's going to be worthwhile watching and um, sending around to people who are having difficulty with their meditation. So look for all those videos. Anything else from anybody? I have a question. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, great. Um, and thanks, uh, David and Delson. I really appreciate this. This is very, very wonderful. And I think uh, in Delson, we have a teacher who has uh, combined incredible knowledge of the suttas plus direct experience. And that's a rare and beautiful thing. So thank you for that. And sharing it, not just a, like a Pacheca Buddha, keeping quiet about it, but having the ability to help other people. So I have a question about um, kind of a follow-up on Frank's uh, question. Uh, what happens with me when I uh, go rather deeply into my sitting is that at some point the 6R kind of just falls away because not much is coming up that I'm perceiving or feeling. And there's a very deep um, satisfaction. I wouldn't say that there's anything personal attached to it that I can perceive, but it is a satisfaction in just um, being. I will use that word. Um, are there pitfalls to that or things perhaps that I'm not seeing? So yeah, is your object at that point a quiet mind? Yes. Yeah, so that's fine. I would say that's totally fine as long as you don't have any kind of other personal thoughts related to it. So if your mind just remains just watching the quiet mind, there comes a point where even the quiet mind kind of disappears. Mm -hmm. It becomes very subtle. And uh, the mind is just not landing on any object at all. So that contentment also will go away and it will become, let's say, disenchantment. That disenchantment will also go away and that will become dispassion. And eventually you just completely let go of it all. So there's not much you need to do here. All you have to do is continue to watch how things unfold. So just keep sharpening the mindfulness to be able to see how contentment transitions into a quieter and deeper level of quiet mind to the point that it becomes so subtle that it's almost not even there. It's almost like, and I, I caution myself to use this word, it's almost like there's just pure awareness. There's nothing else. Like there's nothing the mind is landing on, right? But that awareness itself should not be considered to be taken as some kind of a self or something like that. It's just it's so pristine. There's like almost nothing there. You're like looking through this very, very polished glass and you don't even notice that there's any glass that you're looking through. When you get to that and that all that requires is just soft, gentle 
mindfulness, keep doing what you're doing. And I would, I would say you need a little more time to keep that unfolding process from contentment to uh, disenchantment to dispassion to cessation. As Bhante likes to say, I'm, I'm here now in uh, Damasuka, and he, as he likes to say in the retreat, three hours is good, four hours is better, five hours is even better. So if you have the time, you know, try to meditate for as long as you can in one sit. Wonderful. Thank you. Delson, may I ask something? Yes, please. I'm new here and it's, I'm from the Netherlands. I'm new here. I was looking for the six hours. I have, I have one time, one time, one evening been with Vimala, with Bante Vimala Ramsey, but I think it is 12 or 13 years ago. And uh, I did not follow up with it. But um, in the meta meditation, I did it in the in another way with with all the different persons one after the other. But now I have a difficulty because I was looking, I was look, I I look for the combination from the no self and the 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 sentences with may I be this, may I be that, may you be that, we do. So how to combine? I thought. It's not possible to do it in this way, or you have to know that it is not what you are saying, that you do not mean what you are saying. Um, can you help me with it? Yeah. So one thing you have to understand is when you do this process of may I be happy, may I be well, or you tell somebody else, may you be happy, and so on. These are all verbalizations that happen in specifically the first jhana. When you let that go, so there comes a point where you drop all of that and all you do is just experience the feeling itself. So this meditation is not just verbalizing, which can help initially in order to bring up the feeling. Uh, as, I, as far as I understand it, in other kinds of loving kindness practices, they use in some ways the phrases almost like a mantra, but there's not a lot of feeling going on. There might be, but there's not a lot of attention there. So my recommendation is when you start to feel loving kindness, the warmth of loving kindness, when you verbalize, let go of the verbalization and put your attention and rest your awareness on the experience of the feeling itself. And then just watch how that feeling develops. Watch how that feeling grows or changes or whatever it might be. This process of watching how that feeling changes is actually a process of seeing and perceiving impermanence. When you see that, then that naturally leads to the perception of anatta, as you said. Yes. And when it, when it becomes so very quiet, um, as the speaker before was telling, is, is, and you cannot do it, do it anything, or it doesn't have to, to be, it doesn't have to be done something that is just quiet, just staying and it is quiet. It 
Can you see that as a radiation? No, let me tell it different. Because you were speaking about relation, relationship, meta in the relations this evening. And yeah. I felt very touched by it. I thought this is the thing that I am, how to radiate, but there is no one to radiate. The meta. Yeah, so, so you know, one of, one of the experiences, uh, I just want to know, I mean, I know you said you're new to TWIM, so I think uh, I'll give you a little bit of understanding of how the yes. steps are. First, you, yeah, first you radiate to a spiritual friend, and then afterwards, then you, you radiate to different people or categories of people. And then when it comes to actually radiating to uh, in all directions, you're taking all beings in that sense, not just your family members, not just your friends, not just the difficult people, not just the casual acquaintances, but all beings, all animals, and so on and so forth. There was an experience of uh, somebody who was experiencing infinite space, and they're experiencing compassion. It was in one of the sessions that we were doing where we were going through each of the jhanas. And as he was doing it, one of the things I indicated is when you radiate compassion, it can be a time where you actually start to connect with a specific individual or groups of individual in the meditation. And sometimes you see that that person is suffering. And sometimes you have an intention to call them up or send them an email or message them. And invariably, you'll see that, yes, indeed, they were suffering and they were looking up for somebody to help them and, and things like that. So somebody went through this process doing that. And they actually saw that somebody in their life was suffering and, and they understood that, uh, you know, that person needed support, uh, needed uh, words of guidance and, and help and so on. And, uh, you know, that, that was their decision to whether they wanted to act upon it or not. But that can happen when you radiate loving kindness and when you radiate compassion. You can actually start to connect with certain people and it just gives you a reminder to stay in touch with them and see how they're doing and so on. So in reality, then you take, make contact with the person. Yes. That's a step further. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Delson, um, since we're talking about the Arupa Janas, um, I wondered if you could just uh, give us a few thumbnail sketches of what it's like to be there. What are the, what are the beings yeah. experienced in the uh, upper realms? Yeah, beyond the form realms and the formless mm -hmm. realms. The number one, all that, th th that is there is mentality. When we talk about mentality, materiality, that really is talking about mind and factors of the mind. That's mentality or nama. And rupa, which is the body itself made up of the four great elements or the four states of matter, as we understand in modern understanding. But the arupa jhanas, there's only mentality. So there's still some kind of contact. There's still some kind of feeling. There's still some kind of perception. There's still some kind of intention. There's still some kind of attention. The experience of infinite space, somebody who has an experience of being in infinite space, being a being in infinite space, they have no body. There's no experience of any kind of body. There is just contact in the form of the understanding of an infinitude of space. There's just the feeling and perception of the infinitude of space. There's no borders anywhere. It's like uh, 
you know, I mean, qualitatively speaking, it's that kind of experience where you become one with the universe. But that being, there is still that sense of I am, there's still that sense of I exist. You know, it's not verbalized, but it's just understood as here I am and I am infinite space. Infinite consciousness is interesting because then the, ref the awareness becomes so refined that you start to see mental contact. And that mental contact is in the form of different kinds of perceptions, different kinds of feeling and perception. And that is just basically not flickering, obviously, because that, there's no I there. It's not uh, listening to anything. It's just frames of thoughts. They're like, they're like different frames of thoughts that arise and pass away. And you're just watching this flow of the frames of thoughts arise and pass away. And that's all that's going on and it's happening. But along with that, there is an experience of some kind of relief, some kind of, and by the way, there is a lot of relief because there's no body there. The body has so much pressure, so much suffering, so much other kinds of pain and pleasure and things like that. But none of that is experienced here. In nothingness, there is this idea that there is not even the seeing of the frames of individual thoughts. There's just this experience of nothing. And the way that sense of understanding is I am nothing. You know, there comes a point in somebody's experience of meditation where they realize there's nothing to hold on to. I am nothing. That's the same kind of perception that happens with these beings there. They experience the sense of I am nothing. And they think that to be the, the superior. They think that to be the supreme, that this sense of I am nothing. Now, neither perception or non-perception is very interesting because there's no recognition of what's going on in the way of the factors of mentality. There's no contact. There's no feeling. There's very little perception. There's no intention at all. And so all there is, is this sense of I am. This is also known as, in some traditions, as uh, asmita samadhi. Like in the Yoga Sutras, they talk about asmita samadhi, which is the sense of just existing and not having anything else. It's a sense of I am existing, but not dependent on anything else. But that sense of I am existing itself is uh, also within conditioned reality. And so when a being comes out of this uh, realm of neither perception or non-perception, whatever intention arises just before the dissolution of that experience is liable to create the next set of experiences in the next rebirth. So there's no intention going on there at all. It only happens at the very end. It's very similar to the asanyata beings, but there is still a consciousness of I am. There's still a consciousness of I am existing. And then when the intention rises again, it is liable to create the next rebirth. And you're just swimming in space, not doing anything. <laughs> At least in infinite space, you're swimming in space. There's just nothing going on. And then even the nothingness is just, there's no sense of space either. No sense of dimension, no sense okay. of up, down, here, there. Yeah. Strange. Is it really worth it to uh, hang out there for 84,000 Maha Kappas in the highest? I, I would get bored. I would get yeah, bored I would very easily. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, that was nice for five minutes. Oh, no, another 83,000. 400 and whatever <laughs> Maha Kappas to go. Hmm. Okay.
Um, uh, why not uh, shameless plugs for your book? You've got the book. You just put it on Amazon uh, pre-publication. Yeah. So right now I am working with the uh, the formatter to get it almost done. So we're, we're about a few weeks before we actually get it in print. But it is available on Amazon, uh, uh, on Kindle uh, for pre-order. And I've put the tentative release date as December 3rd. It might come about earlier. But I don't know if you have a link, David, if you want to put it in the chat. But you can go yeah. to that link and you can pre-order. Okie dokie. And then you're working on a much longer book, right? Yes, that's going to take about a year, year and a half to actually finish. And that's a book on dependent origination. Right now, I'm still stuck in craving. I mean, the chapter of craving. You're so stuck in craving, have... did you say? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, it's 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 going to be a big one. It's it's going to be almost like an encyclopedia of dependent origination. As much as as much information as there about is there about each of the links of dependent origination, it's going to be there. So we don't know how it's going to be released. It might be released in different booklets or maybe as one massive vol volume. But I'm going through all 23 links. So that's going to be the 12 links as we understand them when it comes to suffering, and then the 11 links that lead to nibbana. So that's suffering onwards, like uh, faith and pamoja and uh, sukha and tranquility and collectedness, seeing reality as it is, dispassion, all of the different links that we talk about that lead to nibbana. And you're you're basing that book on the Upanisha Sutta, I guess. Upanisha Sutta, that's right. Where everybody thought there was just twelve links, but there's twenty three links, the unknown yeah. links. And that's what yeah. we're all on right now is we're on the 13 links right now on the path right. to Nibbana. That's right. Any further questions today? Hey, hi, David. This is Pat. Hey, Patrick. Uh, Delson. Thank you, Delson. Um, I, I just wanted to, David, to maybe our, our dear friend Jotika there, does she know that uh, there's online courses available at damasuka.org? that she could take to maybe uh, help her get a better understanding since she seemed to be asking that question. In case she doesn't know, I just thought I wanted to throw that out there. I endorse it <laughs> as <laughs> Many well. people have done them. So uh, anyway, Jyotika, if you, if you want, you should look at the website if you don't know already. And yes, maybe, I will. I, yeah, okay. I heard it and I will thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Hi, Del Delson. I have one question, well, two questions on my side. Uh, one is that, um, did I understand right in this jhana, in this uh, sutra you read, um, if you experience each arupa jhana mm -hmm. when you be born, um, you're going to go to the next jhana or you're going to basically be born as uh, an extreme winner um, or you're going to, at the time of death, you're going to uh, basically experience the stream winner uh, or cessation. Um, so my second question is that um, um, if your object is quiet mind and if you have got a very engineering mind and problem solver mind and the task of the day just descend on your mind and distract you a lot, uh, what is your recommendation to practice and calm it down and 
getting back to that state of the um, quiet mind or the object of meditation. Okay. I just wanted to clarify your first question. I was I was not completely uh, able to uh, understand exactly what you're asking. Is it that uh, if somebody gets to a jhana, are they liable to be reborn into a new uh, into that realm associated with that jhana? Right. For instance, if you are experiencing, I don't know, the uh, infinite consciousness. If you reborn, are you going to reborn in a state of the uh, infinite? Uh, I don't know nothingness, or if you experience nothingness in this life, you're gonna experience the you know perception, non-perception next lifetime. Or if you experience the the last Arupajana or eight jhana, are you going to experience cessation at the time of the death? And uh, what what is the uh, Buddha's word on that? Yeah, so I'm gonna go back to the sutta itself. Uh, when he practices in this way and frequently abides. Thus, meaning a person who becomes attached to the experience of that jhana continues to progress their mastery of that jhana. That can lead to an attachment to the jhana rather than seeing it as impersonal. And that can cause that being uh, to take rebirth because what will happen is at the point of dissolution of the body, the mentality, the mind, the formations that arise happen to arise because the mind naturally inclines towards that specific jhana. And if that's the last set of formations that arise, there's a, there can be a tendency to cling to them, which can activate a new consciousness that takes rebirth, so to speak, in that particular Brahma realm associated with that jhana. So if somebody is doing this and has attachment to that jhana, it can cause them to take rebirth there. If somebody attains, you know, attached or has attachment to uh, neither perception, non-perception, they won't go into cessation. They will only go into cessation when they let go of it in meditation. So whatever jhana the mind is most interested in and develops, what happens is because of that continuous development of interest in that jhana, there is a continual strengthening of formations rooted in that jhana practice. Those formations then give rise to an experience that the mind will cling to and then cause rebirth in that particular jhanic realm. But that doesn't mean that the person will move forward into, an, an, into that, the next realm or something like that. It's just whatever realm associated with that, with that particular jhana is where they will go. Okay. And, and, and I guess they're going to be reborn as human being or it's going to be different realm. Well, for example, if you're in the first jhana and somebody is interested in the first jhana and really likes it, then they'll be born in the first Brahma realm associated with the first jhana or with the second jhana with the Abhasa realms, with the third jhana with the Subhakina realms and things like that. So these are the different form realms of the Brahma realms. They won't be born as a human again. They'll be reborn as a Brahma in that particular realm. Thanks. Um, so I guess uh, for the second question. Yeah, the second question is, uh, can you say it again, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so if the object of meditation is quiet mind and um, you have a very engineering mind and problem solving mind and I don't know the task of the, uh, the day and deadlines and all of those descend on your mind where right? you want to basically go through meditation and sit down and but all of those suddenly comes and take you to hindrances or 
restlessness and all those, um, how to basically um, try to, I mean, even if the 6R doesn't work and even if the uh, very basic meta um, doesn't work, just uh, assuming the, the friend and all those, um, what is your recommendation for basically getting to that stage of uh, quiet mind uh, to practice? I mean, it, it's some, some days, of course, is better than some other days. Work might be busy um, compared to other days that work is not as busy, less deadlines, less stress. Um, so yeah, just wanted to know what is your recommendation to practice, especially on difficult days? I would say it depends upon uh, the intention. And what that means is there's a, there's a couple of suttas, or I think three suttas in one after the other, which, which are all known as the Chaitana Sutta or the Sutta on intention. And what it talks about is when there is an intention and there's a planning and there's a tendency towards something, the mind is liable to bring up a consciousness that establishes into that object of intention. So if you intend to, through the day, which is to say you have something going on in terms of a deadline, it is going to be difficult because your mind is inclined towards that. It also says that if you, if you don't have the intention, but you have the plans towards it or your underlying tendency inclines towards it, that's also liable to cause the consciousness to establish into it. But if you don't have an intention, that means and that's very difficult to do because the mind is liable to create some kind of intention or some kind of an activity. Even in meditation itself, when you come to the meditation and you put in some kind of intention, that causes the consciousness to establish into that particular intention. The attitude for meditation should be you sit down and have no expectations. This goes one, well, it goes to the level of beginner mind or one level below that, which is to say, I don't know what's going to happen with the meditation. I don't have any intention. Let's see where mind wants to go. As soon as you put an intention there, there is going to be resistance to that intention in the form of hindrances, in the form of restlessness, in the form of disquietude. So instead of doing that, what you should do is just sit down and allow your mind to become mindful by just watching what's going on in the way of the feeling in the body what's going on in the way of where the mind is inclining towards, basically using the four foundations of mindfulness to let the mind kind of disassociate from the sensual experiences and with whatever is happening in the day or whatever is going to happen in the day. What you'll see when you do that is there is a further quietening of the mind and then it will collect itself around something. Instead of intending that I'm going to radiate loving kindness instead of uh, intending I'm going to radiate compassion, or even instead of intending I'm going to be in the quiet mind, allow the mind to go where it wants to go. And it will naturally incline towards wherever it feels like it wants to go. And your job there is to just observe its attention, let it rest there, and then six are whenever that attention swerves. If you do it in this way, you'll find that the mind quietens down much quicker. So I've done that a couple of times, especially letting the mind go. And of course, it just continue problem solving and getting to the next and next and next. And I try to six star and take it back. Uh, but it just keep going and go into the planning mode and the rest. So um, and I've done some. Uh, so you talk about the four foundations. Um, is it that you recommend I go back to reading or the, the formation of the body or formation of the mind or 
mind and look into that as well? You know, the thing about the foundations of mindfulness, I see the foundations of mindfulness going on even when you're doing loving kindness, even when you're doing breathing, even when you're doing whatever it might be. Because when you have loving kindness, you have the foundation of mindfulness of the body. When you see or perceive warmth in the body, you have the feeling of loving kindness. You have you see the intention that arises through the mind. You have the, the, the actual loving kindness, which is a Brahma Vihara. You might notice a hindrance you might notice this enlightenment factor, whatever it might be. And this is looking at phenomena that, are hap- that is happening within the mind. So I, I would say that, you know, while it seems like the four foundations are a separate practice, they're actually there present in any kind of meditation you do where there's twim, whether it's breathing or loving kindness. As to the recommendation of whether you should do breathing or loving kindness, that's really up to you. You should, you should try and experiment. But if you're going to do breathing, understand that don't allow the mind to focus on the breath so much that it becomes concentrated. Allow the breath to become a reminder of being attentive and relaxing and letting go. Okay. What was the sutras? You said there are three sutras, the Chisa sutras. Do you have the name for those or the numbers? Uh, I think somebody actually typed them in already. It is Chetna Sutta uh, Samyutta Nikaya 12.38. 12.38. Okay, okay, brilliant. Um, so going back to what you mentioned about um, just sitting down and let the mind go wherever it wants to go, um, what if you just continue planning and uh, problem solving? How, do you, how should I tackle that? Six R it. Six R it <laughs> and see, but more importantly, when you six R it, You're recognizing now the mind is restless. You recognize it, you release your attention away from it, you relax it. If you're doing it correctly, if you relax and you re-smile, the return process, just see where the mind collects around. That return process, when you see what's happening there, the mind will naturally collect around something, whether it's loving kindness or whether it's compassion or whether it's the breath, or whether it's the quiet mind. So if you're, you're correctly doing the six R's, then the mind will naturally collect around something. And that's what you have to see and recognize and perceive. So can we by intention put that um, object that mind gonna collect around that or just observe where the mind or what is the object that mind gonna get collect around it? There's two ways of doing it. You can have a slight intention, meaning before you sit down, if you want, you can do that and say, okay, let's try loving kindness. Or, and I would say for you, it might be the preferable way is to just allow it to see where the mind lands upon. Because sometimes if you just allow the mind to go into loving kindness, it might not want to be there. Maybe it wants to be in compassion. Maybe it wants to be in equanimity. Just see where it wants to go to in the way of an object of meditation, not in the way of going through the thought stream of planning see where it's collecting around in terms of an object. So basically in terms of object, you're talking about the Brahma Vira, any of the four objects, basically. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Hi, Nelson. I I have one question about um, the capabilities of beings uh, in these realms, uh, are they able to 
um, uh, develop towards uh, Nibbana or even learn? Or would that not be possible? Just like uh, in the hell realms and just like in the Brahma realms where the beings are burning out their karmic fuel dependent upon what they did in the previous life, it's the same thing in the Arupa Jhanas. There's no capacity to experience the Dhamma, so to speak. The first Brahma realm is quite possible because there's still some verbalizing there. There's still some activity going on there. But then as you get to deeper and deeper or subtler and subtler levels, really what's going on is those beings are just kind of blissed out. You know, they're just walking jhana addicts and they're just, I mean, at least in the form realms and they're not doing anything else. Uh, in the Arupa jhanas or the Arupa realms, uh, they're just burning out the karmic fuel of that experience. So if it's for whatever Mahakapas, that's what's going on. There's no capacity for them to uh, get deeper and experience Nibbana. Right. Thanks. You're welcome. So maybe one or two more questions and we'll um, call an end to this going once. Hi, Delson. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I, I just wanted to um, say you did a really beautiful job with this suit. It really, really is nice the way you put it together and you're so succinct with your timing and everything's really beautiful. And um when you were talking about mind is watching mind, uh, it brought up something for me that um, before the Buddha, meditation seems to have always had a subject and an object involved, like a person and an object always involved. And then, and then along comes the Buddha. He comes along and he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. The object is going to be the subject and turned it around. <laughs> And I yeah. thought that keeps going through my mind. And this was what was happening with this. I kept coming back to that, you know, in this particular thing. Um, yeah, and that, and that brings about the experience of anatta, being able to see this as being impersonal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But um, it's a flip turn, what he does, you know, and um, probably upset a lot of people because they were working from the other angle. You know, there must have been one of the reasons why the six groups got so mad and everything, you know. Yeah. But anyway, they were just terrible. Anyway, um, the, um, oh, I had a question. Wait a second. When do we do this? I was writing notes and, um, wait a minute. Um, yeah. So what was being said in, in the Alagadupama Sutta in, um, 22, it's Majima Kinkaya number 22. The situation with Arti was that he um, he wanted to engage things all the time. And um, and then this, the monks got angry and they sent for the Buddha, said, you've got to straighten him out because there were young monks that were coming there and he was informing them the wrong way. And um, it turns out if you just abandon, 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 and let go, let go, let go, that that's that's where this whole thing ends up. One of the most beautiful things about that was one uh, Anathapindika Sutta, because when you look at mm -hmm. an advice to Anathapindika in one forty three, 
then yeah. that's where you really feel, well, he took the people through life. He taught them all these things. And then in the end, when he's dying, and then Nath Appendica was like a roadie, you know, for, a yeah. ro I call him the roadie when I talk to people about him. He was the roadie <laughs> for the concerts in nature. Everybody had seats and they had water and they had everything they needed and yeah. lamps and space and everything. So he didn't always listen to the Buddha. And this is why he wanted help in the end. He wanted the Buddha to guide him out of life. But the whole lesson is to um, let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. And, uh, yeah. So Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Hmm? I'm sorry. I, no, I, it, that's just this letting go, this abandoning and abandoning and yeah. abandoning. And it seems to work really well. And when you get when you get people in front of you who haven't done anything, have you done that yet? Have you had Have you had, like, a retreat where... You, where ev everybody in the room they haven't read anything about meditation and then you start teaching them it's it's crazy it's so incredible how accurate this stuff is if you get yeah. people who will listen to you and they'll write down everything you say and do what you ask and report back in the interviews and everybody in the retreat is doing that it it, it yes. was a shock then when this happened it was a few weeks back with 16 the 16 nuns that did it with me it was quite something yeah. and only one of them had had a uh, had had a uh, experience um with meditation slightly with vipassana but all the rest of them hadn't cracked a book had never read anything and were only doing centering prayer sort of thing from mm -hmm. the christian side of view of sitting in prayer you know and they took to it like ducks take to water. It was something else that happened. Amazing stuff. So I just wondered if you had ever had this experience with people before like that. Yeah, I have. Uh, whether I was doing online retreat, I mean, mostly online retreat guidance. Uh, there have been other people who had no experience with the meditation. And if they just follow the instructions uh, to the letter, you start to see, basically, it's like a formulaic thing. You start to see the same thing in terms of them experiencing joy and then they let go and then they experience the second jhana and then they experience the third and finally they experience stream entry at some point. So yes, if you follow the instructions and, and don't even have to have any kind of understanding of the suttas, the understanding of the suttas will come later when you actually practice and the practice actually informs you and the experience teaches you and you kind of like unlock the code of the suttas and a lot of the things that you see you kind of recognize from your own experience i just want to touch a little bit on what you were talking about with uh, anatta pindaka uh, 143 if you look at that particular sutta the way uh, sariputta is talking about it, he says my consciousness will not land on any of the five aggregates any of the six sense bases and in this world or the next and so on and so forth there's an encapsulation of all that process where there's a sutta in which, uh, in which uh, Ananda asks, uh, sorry, Putta, is there a, con a is there a perception or is there an experience that is beyond the six sense bases, that goes beyond the five aggregates, that goes beyond uh, the realms as in terms of the arupa jhanas, that goes beyond the this world and that world, and Sariputta says, yes, there is. And it is namely this, the stilling of all formations, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the relinquishment of 
all clinging, of all assets, the dispassion, the disenchantment, the dispassion, the cessation, the the experience of nibbana itself. So if you look at 143 from that context, what Sariputta is doing is leading Anathapindaka to the unconditioned by allowing his mind to let go, let go, let go, until there's nothing that the mind lands on to and it experiences the unconditioned. It's a fun sutta to memorize because to teach someone to memorize is just, I will not cling to the eye and my consciousness will not be dependent on the eye. And you do this yeah. through all the six sense doors. It's the same sentence over and over and over again. You're drilling and drilling your head. And some of them just, uh, we played with that because uh, they wanted to learn something uh, to remember. And we, we chose to use that one and put it in the first tense and let them use it. And, and it really worked wonderfully because most of them could remember it within a few days. They, they memorize prayers, you know, and stuff. So they're good yeah, memorizers. That's wonderful. Oh, but it was such a good feeling to see this leaving, you know, this, what a way to be ushered out. You know, what a way, just amazing. Yeah. Thank you for the sutta. I really enjoyed it. And... Okay. I think. Um, Could I say Can I on... something, Dave? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I just wanted to uh, verify what, uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, if you get my seal of approval, <laughs> but what Delson <laughs> had said uh, to Sister Kima was true true for me in any case when i did i just did the online retreats as you know and um david and um i i knew very little about buddhism i mean just hardly anything and i hadn't really i'd listened to maybe a video or so but i knew very little i i went into it with no expectations i just followed along uh, I didn't kill myself with trying to meditate all day and do all, anything extreme. I just, you know, went about my life and then I, I made sure I did what I needed to do, you know, what was required. And, um, you know, and I had great success. And then after that, I started delving into reading and studying more and, and that type of thing. So anyway, that was my two cents worth. I just wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think our best students that come here don't know anything at all. You know, oh, yeah. they, they haven't practiced, you know, uh, Tantra, uh, breath or Tibetanness or MTV of anything, you know, Mahayana, Theravada, Rajaran, nothing. They just go, well, we just want to meditate, you know, and they don't really even know what the goal is. Right, and they right. just figure it, well, they'll, they'll get calm and relaxed. Right. And some of them even come and say, Oh, I thought this was a yoga retreat, but then they leave. That's <laughs> uh, true. Uh, um, I think uh, who's it? Russ said that when he was here. But uh, then they leave, you know, flying up into the jhanas. They had no idea, and they left with an amazing experience. But they had no idea what the background was. And like you did, Tommy, was you had to go and read what the heck all this stuff was all about. And right. uh, yeah, so right, right, so yeah, so it, it's it's just no expectations is a way to start, I guess, just in a stay with that. I, I you know, as yeah, you go wrong, whole, just, and your sitting should be 100% no expectations, too. 
Right. I always tell people, Tommy, I always tell people to uh, go into the sitting as as if you were two years old and you were peeking, you were peeking around the corner just to see who's in the next room. And you go in (laughs) just to see what happens next. See, like Nelson said, expecting nothing. But if you have kids, you remember when they were little and they'd walk around all over the house trying to see what this is and what that is. You right. go in just to see what happens next with that frame of mind and just sit. That's what right. you do. Perfect. <laughs> or if you're the kids, just sit down and shut up. <laughs> no. Hi, David. I that that never happen. Happen. Zen, David. No, I, 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 no that never happened. No. That's funny. <laughs> All right. Is that it, or let's, we, uh, uh, let's share some merit? Okay. All right. May suffering ones be suffering free, free, and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, and may all beings find relief. May all beings share this merit that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share this merit of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu. All right. Thank you very much. We will see everybody next week if you so desire. And we'll just keep going uh, Sundays at uh, 1 o'clock our time um, into November with Bhante um, restarting again. And everybody have a good week and a good city. Yeah.